talking about what time are we living in, how do we strengthen democracy, and how do we bolster democracy in the age of impunity. I would like to welcome up on stage the former Prime Minister of Sweden, the leader of the Social Democratic Party in Sweden, Magdalena Andersson, and President and CEO of the International Rescue Committee and the former Foreign Secretary of the United Kingdom, David Miliband. You, you know, Johan, those are such modest introductions for such exceptional guests <laughs> that we have here. Uh, it's really thrilling to be joined uh, by uh, both of you, uh, good partners, old friends, uh, at a time when um, I think there's much available uh, for us all uh, to be able to do. Uh, in truth, uh, I'm embarrassed by the notion that I'm going to be your interlocutor in this conversation. What we all need to do is to make sure that we just turn on your microphones uh, and we listen uh, and lean into the lessons that uh, you, you'll like, make clear for us. So for so many years, I'm going to start with you, uh, uh, Prime Minister, and come uh, to you, uh, David, Mr. Secretary. Um, for so many years, uh, there's been this notion of the inevitability uh, of uh, democracy. I can well uh, recall uh, the joy at the Berlin Wall falling, of Nelson Mandela uh, being released, of Iron Curtain being uh, pulled uh, down and this sense that uh, we had reached uh, this point of inflection uh, in history as we move from uh, Cold War norms uh, to this uh, moment of uh, cooperation uh, and solidarity. A funny thing happened uh, on the way to the party. Uh, we seem to have gotten um, uh, tripped up uh, along uh, the way. It's clear now that we have a fragility uh, in our institutions and this very notion of uh, democracy. There are some, uh, and I think, uh, David, this is something you'll, you will press on, uh, but there are some who, uh, like me, hail from the Global South, uh, who always had this sense uh, that much of the systems that we have in place, most of the institutions that we had in place, were actually not hardwired uh, for inclusive democracy uh, and our full participation, uh, and that reforms have been needed for a long time. But I wonder, starting uh, with you, uh, Prime Minister, uh, your analysis of how we arrived here uh, in this moment uh, and how it should inform and instruct uh, our deliberations uh, this weekend. Thank you so much, and thank you for the introduction. And I mean, the period you're talking about is when I think both me and, and David started being active politicians and started in politics, and it was a fantastic era. And as you said, I thought this was the end of history, and now things were only going to move forward. Uh, democracy, we're going to win uh, all over the globe. And now we're here. And I think there are so many lessons to learn uh, from these decades. And there is no question we were naive. And we forgot that democracy is something that we have to win every day, every week, every month, every human, every new generation, all the time. We also, I think, forgot how important it is to have governments that pursue policies for ordinary people. Otherwise, they will be disappointed. And this is what we see now. And I mean, what we're seeing right now, globally, I mean, this is, is a fight for core values, democracy or authoritarian rule. We see it in our countries, in, if not all, absolutely majority of countries in the world. We see it within the European Union, 
And we see it globally. We see it in Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And uh, this is a fight that we have uh, to take every day. And also be very aware that the, the right-wing extremists, that's an international movement. They're well organized. They have lots of supporters that are very active, uh, very passionate. And they um, are better at the new media than we are. Progressives. So we have to shape up and realize this is a fight we have to take every day. And it's existential. Well, thank you very much for the invitation to be here. It's really, really great to be uh, among colleagues who are thinking about policy and politics together. And in response to your question, Patrick, I, I think there are three different things going on, and we need to understand how they are related, but also how they are separate. The first thing is, let's be very clear that there is a fundamental change going on on the right of politics. We're used to talking about social democracy in crisis. But what's happening to the center-right, the evisceration of the center-right by a radical right, is a major change for all of our societies. Uh, I think that, and I sometimes say that they remind me of right-wing Trotskyists, that there's a doubling down upon doubling down of extremism on the right that knows no limits. And I think we've got to understand that we're dealing with different kind of political enemy now, and studying the political enemy is an important part of this. Secondly, I think we've got to also recognize a delivery deficit in our democratic societies, delivery of the democratic promise, both in policy terms and the inclusion, the political terms that you uh, refer to. I don't think that's a technocratic point. I think it's a fundamentally political point. And the way in which global change has left behind too much of our domestic policies, I think, is part of the disenchantment that exists. And at a global level, part of the story from the autocrats who now consume or produce more than half of global GDP for the first time in 100 years coming from autocracies rather than democracies, part of their argument is that democracies aren't working very well. And there's too much evidence of that. Third point, which I, uh, we may not get a chance to talk about, but I think is really important. Remember that after the Second World War, the rules-based international order was constructed not just to tackle global problems. The pioneers of the rules-based international order built it in order to safeguard democracy at home. So right from 1945, there was a fundamental connection between the rule of law globally and democratic rule nationally. And so we shouldn't be surprised that at a time when in the conflict zones where we work, impunity, the title of, part of the title of this session, when impunity is on the march internationally, its counterpart is democratic recession mm. nationally. And so in my thinking about this, I try and understand the connections between those three points, but also how they are different and separate. So before I come back to, to you, Prime Minister, I just want to go uh, to a little deeper on one of your uh, uh, points, uh, David, about the uh, extreme capture uh, of the uh, right way. Uh, and I wanted to kind of sit in that ac across our countries. It's been interesting for me to note uh, in the U.S. Uh, that as I look at results from different regions of the country, uh, it's not as if there has been this radical uh, realignment in, uh, in the um, electoral performance uh, of average citizens. Uh, but instead, we're seeing a narrowing of choices at the extremes uh, on uh, the right. And I wonder how that's manifest uh, in uh, your own space uh, in uh, the UK, 
and what your reflection on it uh, suggests in the way of a prescriptive response uh, from us. Appreci appreciating uh, the, uh, that um, change, change has been more something else. Of the yes, that's a separate. No, but change has been more at the level of elites uh, than uh, at the grass uh, roots in, in essence. So look, I think um, my read of this is is first of all, as social democrats, we're most comfortable talking on issues of economic inequality. We almost take liberal democracy for granted. So, and my first point is social Democrats have to fight for liberal democracy and we have to fight with people. We have to ally with people who are on the center right, even as we compete with them for policy differentiation. It's a very difficult dance because the old center right is disappearing under the pressure of the radical, of the radical right. And the core of that takeover, if you like, of large parts of the radical right, I think comes down to the fact that the traditional um, pro-business right, which was a ameliorative, moderate social conservatism, has been sort of uh, wrought asunder. I'm going to use a swear word, but only in the quote from Boris Johnson, who said, fuck business. Now, that was his public statement because he was speaking to an, uh, a constituency that felt disenfranchised by the economic bargain. And I'm very struck, if you look at, you know this much better than I do, but I think I'm right in saying in 2016, when Hillary Clinton lost, of the 4,000 districts of American electoral politics, she won only five or 600 of them, but they represented more than half of the GDP of the country. And so the traditional assumption that working class people voted for the Democrats, middle and upper class voted for Republicans is being skewed by this educational, education is now the best predictor. So with apologies for the rambling answer, I think that there's, it's the way in which economic and social conservatism have changed their spots. I think there's then a big set of implications for us about how we, what kind of policy agenda we pursue and what kind of political organizing agenda we pursue. You'll have a moment to speak more on that very last point in, in a moment. Uh, Prime Minister, let's get your perspective from on the ground in this moment uh, in Sweden. All of us, of course, are seeing and reading about things like the Quran burnings and uh, are shocked to see that there is constituency uh, for uh, that kind of uh, activity. Uh, I wonder if you can kind of pick up the strand of what uh, David just put down uh, on what's metastasized uh, in the right uh, and its implications, uh, at least in Sweden, uh, in, in the space of response. Well, I mean, what's happening in Sweden right now after elections a year ago is it's happening quickly. And it's, to be honest, very scary. We got an election result where the second largest party is a, a right-wing nationalist party with no zeros. Uh, we have a government it's a governing coalition of four parties, but this largest party is not part of the government, but they, of course, are very, very influential. And um, they, what we see is, is the way these kind of uh, movements are working, I think, in, in, in many, many countries with threats and with hate, and they have done it in Sweden for a long time as well. But the fact is when they have so much power now, it's Matanvetsche. So if, if one of the one of the leading persons from 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 this uh, uh, right wing extremist party now is twittering 
uh, threatening NGOs to cut all their public finance if they criticize the government, which is happening, that really means something. It makes NGOs and civil society afraid when they are twittering, threatening individual journalists. It really means something. Journalists get scared of, of actually asking the right, the important questions. When they attack individual artists, of course, this means something. Or when they're threatening to, um, uh, to cut the largest opposition party's financing. This makes my country more silent, more quiet, and fewer people who dare to raise their voice. And this is one year in uh, this coalition. On top of that, we have the quorum burning uh, crisis, uh, which has led to a diplomatic crisis with the uh, Arabic or Muslim world. Um, the two persons that have been most uh, active on quorum burnings, they do have connections with this uh, right-wing extremist party. And their leading uh, uh, politicians are also twittering hate about or spreading hate and prejudice against Islam in this situation. Of course, this is, uh, to be honest, rather scary. So I think if anyone wants to have examples on how right-wing extremist parties can act once they actually get into power, you're very welcome to Sweden. <laughs> I think uh, uh, that's, that's daunting, Prime Minister, and you know we, we hope to be able to take up some examples here of how progressives can act in the face of that kind of fury. David's, of course, right about uh, what we saw uh, in the UK and, of course, in the United States with both uh, right-wing leaders like uh, Boris Johnson and Donald Trump taking on the language of popular economic uh, struggle. Uh, I'm embarrassed that I took the stage here and didn't express my own solidarity with uh, the hundreds of thousands of United Auto Worker Union uh, members right now that are uh, forced and compelled to go on. Uh, the picket lines uh, in the U.S., but it's been really interesting to hear uh, Donald Trump speak directly uh, to what's happening uh, with those workers and to tell them that the reason why they're faced with this challenge right now is because progressive Democrats, Joe Biden, uh, are forcing uh, us all to react uh, to climate, to renewable energy, uh, and creating an economic uh, ecosystem uh, that's driven by our uh, energy uh, mania uh, and EV batteries, which will, in his words, uh, help make them lose their jobs and their dignity uh, at work. And I think it makes them more susceptible to the kinds of things that uh, you uh, and David described. And I wonder how both of you are thinking about uh, the response to that nimble, uh, agile uh, extremism uh, that's able to tap in uh, and uh, manipulate uh, that uh, kind of anxiety fear, fear uh, and real-world um, uh, exploitation uh, of workers. Well, I had a reflection on the previous panel, which I think answers that question, because uh, one thing that I think didn't come out in the polling is that my sense is that a large part of the grievance against some of the messaging that um, Hans and Marcus put forward is a sense that citizens of one country are being asked to do something, but others aren't doing it. So it's a different question about solidarity. And I just want to say, Magda can speak to this because, of course, in Sweden, um, 
there's a history where Swedes have said, hang on, we're taking a larger share of the European migration responsibility. And why aren't countries like France or others doing it? And the answer is there's an absence of a European scheme. But I just want to say a, a few more words uh, about this, this point. Because, of course, there's a fundamental truth that no one country can solve the climate crisis. So my first answer to you, Patrick, is let's start by telling the truth. Saying we need to pass the Inflation Reduction Act in order to save the climate involves a fundamental elision of the truth. We can only prevent 1.5 degrees, 2 degrees, 2.6 degrees if other countries do it too. And I think that applies on the migration question as well. There's how are these responsibilities um, dividing globally? And that's one example of where, if you like, the regional or the global intersects with the national. And I fear that in abiding to the adage that all politics is local, which it obviously is, we end up cutting ourselves off from a group of voters who are saying, yeah, but what about next door? What are they doing? And I think we've got to speak to that aspect of grievance, not just the obvious socioeconomics of widening inequalities in our own countries. Yeah, it's true. But people feel personally impotent in their lives, and, and that gets projected out uh, in the nativist rhetoric that's about strength and security, uh, the strength of the nation and the ability to uh, compete effectively uh, against others. Uh, yeah, and I'm sure Tony will talk about this later because he's very, very hot on this. But remember, yeah. in large parts of people's lives, they don't feel impotent. They feel that in their dealings with the private sector or with others, they can, as consumers, yeah. yes. this is why this yes. modernizing government, reforming government, addressing the delivery deficit has got to be a part of it. If, if government makes you feel disempowered compared to other aspects of your lives, then we really have a problem as the proponents of active government. Prime Minister, can you pick up on that point about the delivery deficit as somebody who has uh, been in a seat of delivery <laughs> recently? But Karen, there is a delivery deficit. People feel left behind because they are left behind. And I mean, we were back in the 90s. I mean, when we talked about the, the, the advantages of globalization, we always said that we're going to be richer out of globalization. But some, the gains are not going to be distributed equally. We knew it, but we weren't good enough at having policies that actually did distribute the gains from globalization in a fair and equal way. And I mean, that is that is one part of it, uh, which we can never, we, we really have to remember every day and we have to have good policies for better redistribution. But this is not everything. Um, I think the point that you made and was also made in the previous panel, we should never, never forget. People are willing to do their share if they know that others are doing their fair share. But when the feeling is that others are not doing their fair share, the willingness to take refugees, do things to stop climate change, or pay your taxes and other things, they're not simply not there. Uh, so we have to have a fair, uh, we have to do, we do have to have a fair redistribution when it comes to refugees. We have to make sure that we all do our fair share when it comes to climate change, which is honestly very difficult in a situation where people have a difficult time pass paying their mortgages, their electricity bills and their and their gas, the gas prices. Um, so to sum it up, um, we simply have to all the time point to the fact that the right-wing extremists they try to get us into the culture war 
discussing issues that are not material uh, in areas that we will never win. I think we really have to show that this is where they want to have the debate and be clear on that. And from that perspective, also showing that they don't really care about ordinary people because they want to talk about who is reading stories in, in the library rather than how you are going to be able to pay your mortgages. Um, David, I know that you are kind of like itching and bursting to go, get a little further on uh, the Prime Minister's language on uh, fair share because you're consumed with this question of impunity uh, and accountability uh, in your work uh, and, of course, uh, on the broad empathy deficit that we're experiencing as well when it comes to questions of uh, migration and, and, and absorption. And I wonder how you think, uh, as progressives, we should be taking up in a material way uh, this question of impunity in this conversation uh, and in the work of uh, delivery uh, on this democracy dividend. That's quite hard to to cover all that. Just let me make yeah, but you know, you're, you're let me just say David Miliband. Two ways you get the hard questions. Two two quick things. One was I think the migration question is separate from the um, impunity question. On the migration issue, look, the Pope went to Lampedusa. Um, in 2013 and said that the world, the, the world is facing the globalization of indifference. So that's your empathy gap. Yeah. I, I'm, I don't think that's right. I actually think, I, don't, I haven't got the surveys, but actually there's a lot of empathy. What people f fear though, is that the empathy is not gonna be well channeled. And my sense is that there's an absence of agency, not an absence of, uh, uh, of empathy. People will do the right thing if they feel A, it will work and B, other people will do it as well. So I, I feel that the migration question, I, I use a slightly different word than Hans um, Anker. I talk about how um, to manage migration, that, that order is the right aspiration for our borders and for migration, but the cruelty does not deliver order. And the, that's why, that's the way I try and get into the argument about how the asylum system works, about the work that we do at the southern border. Uh, I think we've got to embrace the idea of order, but argue that cruelty is not the way to deliver it and then show what we would do better. And obviously Keir Starmer was doing a bit of that um, this week. Just on my hobby horse about impunity, I do think this is the global battle. It's not, I'm afraid, democracy versus autocracy. It's impunity versus the rule of law. There's never been global democracy. What we can aspire to, though, is the, is the global rule of law. And that's what makes this Ukraine crisis so absolutely fundamental. It's the most flagrant uh, an invasion is the most flagrant breach of international law, but it's only the tip of a very large iceberg. And the civilian bombings that are happening in uh, Ukraine, I was there last week, uh, have happened before in Syria. And the impunity has been seen in other war zones around the world. And I feel it's, in, it's the rule of law and the battle against impunity that is the right rallying cry for hard-headed progressives as they think about their international relations agenda, whether it be on Russia or China or the engagement with the Global South. So for a moment, I'm going to pretend that we don't have a two-minute time limit hanging over us, David, and I'm going to kind of force you to, um, if you can, just go a little uh, a little further along uh, in the argument. Because, you know, for, for, for some of us, you know, I'm, I'm, my, my people are from Haiti, I was born in the DRC, we've never had a real sense of what on earth is meant by this international rule of law uh, in the West. Uh, and it seems as if there are uh, really double standards in many of the places that you yourself uh, operated. So I, I just wonder what 
this ought to mean to us uh, as progressive reformers who are thinking about the institutions that right. are stood up uh, after World War II and their implications right now for how we think about shared responsibility, obligation, uh, and accountability on all the suite of interventions that you kind of... Great. Right. So number one, get our own house in order. Yep. So for example, the US Department of Defense has just published a new manual on how to avoid civilian deaths. That's not in, in conflict. That's not been taken up by the rest of the G7 or the rest of the Western world. Getting our own house in order on the most flagrant abuses that we've done of, of, of those fundamental rights is absolutely uh, core to this. Secondly, with wealth comes responsibility. And the reason that 50 countries representing more than half of the global population have refused to condemn the Russian invasion of Ukraine is not because they approve of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It's because they've uh, put it in the, that they're not willing to ally with a West that they see having mismanaged globalization, whether it be about COVID or about the pandemic or about the role of the global financial institutions. So what's the answer to that? Is to get onto the front foot so that we are managing the risks of the pandemic, so that we are managing the climate uh, crisis in an effective way. And I, just to give you one example of what that means in practice, at the moment, $1 per person per year is spent in Somalia on climate adaptation. There isn't much energy consumption to mitigate in Somalia, but there's no spending on adaptation. And we've done an index at the IRC on countries of extreme vulnerability and countries with resilience. And it's the fragile and conflict states where half of the world's extreme poor now live that have low adaptation and high vulnerability. Let's live out what we say about global solidarity by putting those countries, actually Haiti would be one of them, on the agenda when it comes to the climate talks. On pandemics, there's a discussion in uh, New York next Thursday, sorry to be on my hobby horse about this, but there's a resolution of, about political leadership in facing up to pandemics. And there's no political leadership in the 49 paragraphs of the resolution that's being voted on. It could be voted on by the World Health Assembly. It's right in the weeds of health policy. So let's, one, put our house in order. Let's, two, let's, let's walk the walk on global solidarity. Let's not just talk about it. That's... A, any, a, amen to that. Uh, uh, Prime Minister, I'm going to give you an opportunity to close us out uh, on, a, on, on a note of uh, what's possible. David, I thought, had some really pointed uh, suggestions that he made about how we approach discussions next week uh, and uh, beyond on impunity, uh, on accountability. We have to be honest with ourselves and say that not that long ago, a few, a few years ago, we all had real questions about the future of the European uh, Union. So some of us were saying we better reform the union in order to restore the union and save the union to the future. Uh, and then, lo and behold, we had uh, the pandemic that forced collectivity and collective action that showed urgency uh, and material need for the union. Uh, and of course, now we have uh, the crisis in Ukraine uh, that has further emboldened that uh, sense of collectivity. So as we leave this stage now, uh, and as we uh, immerse ourselves in the conversation here, can you just give us a note, uh, given the trajectory of history and how it comes running at you in a hurry, uh, of uh, what you uh, are optimistic about and what's possible for us uh, as progressives, either from your perspective in Sweden uh, or as a global leader? Oh, thank you. That's a small question. <laughs> Start on a... Um... Starting on a European level, I, I, I have, to be honest, been rather impressed how the European Union responded 
to the COVID crisis and to uh, uh, the war in Ukraine. Uh, we were able to get together and uh, provide, when it came to, to COVID, provide uh, help to our citizens, both when it came to, to actually preventing COVID, but also the economic consequences of COVID. Uh, I think that strengthened the the, uh, uh, the status of the European Union, at least in my country, but also in other European countries. But also how we were able to come together, uh, both to support Ukraine, but also with the sanctions against Russia. Uh, this was, of course, very important for Ukraine. But it's also very important for who we are in the European Union. What are we? What do we actually stand for? And the most important thing now, of course, is to be able to continue the support to Ukraine and and the sanctions uh, of Russia and to build our own military. But that's one part of it. On a happy note forward, I mean, we have seen many examples of uh, how difficult we have to handle these uh, right-wing authoritarian movements. But... To pick up on something that you said, David, the the need for order, you say, well, we could also say take back control. Uh, but I think there is a feeling that we need to take control of many of the developments that we see. We need more politics, not more markets. We need strong politicians and strong political answers. And if there is something that a progressive progressives around the world can actually contribute with and offer citizens this more politics, doing more things together, actually solving the problems we have together in our countries, but also globally. And that is truly a progressive answer to the problems we're Prime Minister, thank you for that enthusiastic declaration. David, thank you for... D David, thank you for your insistence on a candor in our deliberations. Thank you all.